Welcome to the Free Dive Cafe, episode 132 with Guillaume Neri. My name is Donnie. I'm the host of the Free Dive Cafe. The Free Dive Cafe is the long-form interview podcast that explores the backstories, the training, the challenges, and the combined wisdom and personal philosophies of the world's freedivers. The Free Dive Cafe website and home base is at freedivecafe.com. And of course, you can also find all the episodes on all the good podcast players like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher. So, I'm leaving for Dahab in three weeks. It's very exciting. I haven't really left this little island in southern Taiwan for two and a half years. Uh, every so often I go back and get some shopping to the Taiwanese mainland. So, it's a little bit overwhelming, not only thinking about going to another country, but especially going somewhere so different from here. The main purpose of the trip is to train freediving, to get into the blue hole and have a few weeks of uninterrupted and focused depth adaptation. I hope to get myself into great diving shape and I'm registered for the August event of the Freediving World Cup in Sharm el-Sheikh. It will be my second competition and I hope to do some nice dives there just for myself uh, that can test and validate my approach to freediving as I've been developing it over these past few years. As well as training, I have a limited number of courses I will be teaching. One level one, one level two, and a level three or master's course. Uh, the way I teach a course tends towards a more extensive and involved course content, a little bit extra added on top of the education um, organization's material, a little bit longer courses, a little bit more time on the water. If that sounds like something you're interested in, those courses will take place in July in Dahab. And you can find out more from the main website, at freediveandthrive.com or email me at donny at freediveandthrive.com Don't forget to check out the new podcast The Freediving Journal Episode 4 came out recently and in that episode I did with neurosurgeon Juani Valdivia uh, we looked at a study that was done looking at the fMRI brain scan images of a world champion freediver during static apnea You can find the new podcast at freediveandthrive.com slash journal That world champion freediver who participated in that study was Guillaume Neri, who is today's guest, and we'll get to him in a moment. First, I just want to say a massive million thank yous to those kind persons who support the Freedive Cafe and the Freediving Journal through the Patreon page. If you like what I do here, if you would like to show some love and get some bonus materials, then consider becoming a patron. You can check it out at patreon.com slash freedivecafe. Special thanks to new patrons Craig Brandon and Louise, C, Mia and Wes. Uh, those are the newcomers. Sorry if I missed anyone. I didn't do a Free Dive Cafe episode for a month, so I'm catching up on the Patreon uh, new members too. So today's guest is Guillaume Neri. 
a world champion freediver who I barely have to introduce. He is one of the most iconic personalities in the freediving universe, known all over the world for his incredibly deep diving, a depth career interrupted by an accidental deepest dive in history, and his beautiful short films produced in collaboration with Julie Gauthier, which have been seen by millions and millions of people around the world, perhaps exposing them for the first time to the underwater world and to freediving. Thank you so much for listening to the Freedive Cafe. Let's head over to Nice to meet Guillaume and settle down to hear his story. Let's dive. Okay, okay, Guillaume Neri, welcome to the Freedev Cafe. It's a pleasure to finally meet you. I think you, I think you might be the most anticipated guest to ever appear on the show. So thank you for coming and making time for this conversation. Welcome, man. Thank you, thank you. Hello to all the people who are listening to us. It's a real, real pleasure. Nice. To finally, do this interview together. Yes. So let's. Uh, Let's start with um, a little bit about your background, Guillaume. Um, maybe you could just sort of tell us, you know, where you're from and a little bit about how you were growing up and how you came to find this wonderful world of uh, freediving and, you know, the underwater world. So I, um, I'm 39 years old. I'm turning 40 in two months. So I am born, I was born in 1882, 18, oh, sorry, 1982, uh, in Nice. This is the city where I grew up by the Mediterranean Sea. Um, I spent all my childhood, um, um, I mean, in contact with the water because Nice is really by the sea, but I had no special relation with the sea and the water except in summer, like all the kids living here. Uh, going in the summer with the parents, so I had this uh, this love for the water, but just in summer. And what I really loved already at that time is having a mask, a pair of fins, and trying to go down a little bit. But it was nothing. It was just like uh, not, was, not there is there was nothing with the sport. It was like something fascinating, like exploration, um, and and it was my little adventure. I was spending more time uh, in the um, in the mountain because Nice is really between the the French Alps, the south part of the French Alps, and the sea. And with my parents, I was more walking, and uh, this is how I got the love uh, for nature. Um, but um, I was not feeling comfortable in the water. I remember when I was going to the pool uh, with the school. Uh, I was not feeling good at all. Uh, I was not a good swimmer. I was a bit overweighted. Uh, not a lot, but just a little bit. And I was really not feeling confident in the water. Um, when I was 14 years old, uh, we were coming back from a tennis game with a, with a friend. And uh, we challenged ourselves, like, who can hold his breast the longest? It was one challenge, like, 
all the teenagers can do and uh, and and uh, we were playing almost every time different games and one day it was the press old game and i lost after half an hour of the doing the trip in the bus i did i don't remember exactly but something like 1 minute and 30 seconds and my friend did 2 minutes and 9 seconds i remember hmm. I still remember exactly the time because wow it was like kind of a trauma uh, because I was like, oh, no, I lost. I lost. There is no way that I, uh, I will lose in this game. So I would train. I had no idea at that time. It was in 1996. Um, and I came back home and I was like laying down in my bed, uh, trying to hold my breath, trying to discover the, my own limits. I remember I was like... Uh, going naked in the bed because I read on the book that the, the skin, skin was breathing. So I was like, maybe I would get extra seconds. I've uh, never doing, heard uh, this one before. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> so uh, just to tell you that I was really motivated and uh, dedicated and, and I improved my performances. I was about to hold my breath more than two minutes and more than three minutes. And I was still 14 years old and I was able to hold my breath between four and five minutes. So I was like, uh, wow, there is something that I had no idea about that it was a sport. And uh, uh, I was just playing this alone, discovering the capacities of my body. And then 1996, exactly at the same time, uh, it was the first ever world championship organized in Nice, in my hometown. And I had no idea about that. Um, but uh, more or less about around the same period, I, I on an evening I uh, I watched like it was really by chance a documentary about Umberto Pellizzari. Uh, he was like uh, at that time he was like the world record holder in many many depth disciplines, and I just was I was just like completely uh, uh, in awe with. The beauty of the images, the, the, I, I was, uh, fascinated, uh, looking at him swimming down. I remember they were showing his record in constant weight. At that time, he was diving down to 75 meters with bifins. <gasps> and I, I was like, okay, what I'm doing in my bed can be used to do that. And I kind of fell, fell in love. And I was like, okay, this is what, this is something I want to try. I want to do that for sure. But in 1996, uh, I, 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 there was no internet. I mean, it was not developed. I had no internet at home. Very hard to get information. And, uh, and I was looking for some, I didn't know, other people, club, structures. And I discovered that in Nice, I was just at the right place because there was a group of passionate people who were training every weekend in the week, in the swimming pool. And I was like, okay, I want to meet them. And this is really how the adventure started in 1997. I was 15 years old. And um, and I met uh, all the, the group here. So do you remember any of that group? Uh, who, who, who introduced you? Any names that we would know? Uh, the first guy I met is my mentor, the guy who taught me everything, Claude Chapuis. Um, Claude Chapuis was the first guy that I, I met. Is um, uh, the one who really uh, created this spirit in Nice in the early 90s 
uh, is one of the guys who created AIDA, uh, is the one who organized uh, the first world championship. So that was him and another guy. His name is Olivier Eleu. Olivier was in the French team uh, in Sardinia in 1998, in, uh, in Nice in 2000, in Ibiza 2001 really one of the early member of the French team and, and Claude and Olivier were the two guys who really introduced me to the group. And in the group, I met a few weeks later, Loïc Leferme. Um, in, at that time, he was not a record holder yet. He was like really the, the growing athlete. Uh, he was diving deeper and deeper in no limits and, uh, and I was lo watch, looking at him like, wow, uh, it was not the Umberto Pellizzari that was, was only looking at the TV. Umberto was kind of the legend uh, somewhere in the world. I had with me in the same boat Loic, who was training. I remember when he broke his first French record in, in No Limits, 118 meters. And then the year after, he broke the, his first world record at 137 meters. And I was there, and uh, yeah, it's a long time ago. It was 23 years ago. But uh, yeah, that was like, uh, I was living a dream. Yeah, so you were you were about that time about 15 or 16 years old? When I started, uh, when I did the, 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 the first dive uh, with the group, it was in 1997, uh, I was 15, and um, I spent... Uh, Two, three years between 15 and 18 meters improving discovering the discipline improving the performances making new friends having a new group um, so that was before 18 years old i love this about the uh going naked into the bed because you thought you could maybe get some more like uh, oxygen through the skin you know i think that answers the question about why you were doing these deep dives in your speedos uh recently you know it's not not just some kind of stunt right <laughs> um so yeah i mean at that time going back now 20 something years you I'd, obviously there there were not the same kind of uh, free diving courses and the very systematized edu education systems that we have now um how then as a young person learning to do free diving and learning to do depth did you find your way into depth what what were the 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 educational elements that you were exposed to that enabled you to start to dive deeper and deeper we were like really kind of pioneers because uh, we were all together trying to discover uh, like a new territory so basically i had the expertise of uh, my mentors and uh, Loic uh, at the beginning, but when I became, uh, uh, when I started to dive deeper and deeper, um, after 18 years old, between 18 years old and 19 years old, I became the deepest French guy. So I was kind of discovering by myself, mm. uh, talking with others. Um, um, I had the chance to uh, take part to the first, uh, to the my first world championship in Ibiza uh, in 2001. I was uh, alternate, so I was not diving. Uh, and, 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 and that was a, a first experience where I could share the knowledge 
with other athletes coming from other countries. And it was fascinating because we were all trying to get new informations. We were, um, like in Nice, we had our own way of diving, very, very um, um, uh, conservative. Like, uh, this is the way I learned, really improving my performance step by step. Um, uh, like we had like kind of a rule at that time, like every time I was uh, doing a new uh, personal best, the day after, I mean, the next training, I had to repeat the same. And if I do two times the personal best and the, 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 the dive is perfect, then I can improve two meters by two meters. And it was like really, uh, very slow improvements. And, uh, and we were trying things. At that time, the equalization was like today, one of the issue. But we were not talking about mouse field. We were not talking about, uh, we were not that technical. We were trying things. So I, I was very, very lucky because I, oh, I always equalized hands free. So I was able to dive, uh, with my mask and uh, hands free and I could manage to equalize. And I didn't know at that time what I was doing. I learned after, okay, I was doing reverse packing, um, and all the different technique and method we have now. And we know how to teach each of them at that time. It was very hard, barely impossible to explain to someone else how, how I was doing. When I, when I did my first world record, uh, in 2002, I was 20 years old. I dove at uh, 87 meters. Uh, I was wearing a mask, hands free until the bottom. Hmm. It was hard to explain. Ah, what, how do you yeah, do? And yeah. I was like, I don't know. When I need, I do something. I, I, I try to, to grab some air from the lungs and I equalize. And that was it. We were not talking about glottis and about soft palate and about all this very technical thing. So it was very interesting. It was much longer to learn, uh, but fascinating to, uh, fascinating way to, to, to explore. Yeah. I like that, that you had this, uh, slow and, uh, careful progression over time and that there was this process of discovery you know i often tell my own students that you know this is in a sense where you look up to the likes of yourself and and will truebridge and umberto palazzari and and, and and we you know we, we talk about how you know you're kind of the living legends of free diving something like this but people forget that there was a 10 or a 15 year process to become the the deep free diving athletes that you are and a, a lot of people now are you know really trying to get very deep very quickly and you can see that there's often some issues with that kind of desire to achieve depth very quickly of course we we all know that and i think it's important to know that it's not it's not just that you might be talented, but that you also take the time and have the patience to slowly adapt over time. What what kind of uh, did you have some kind of uh, special techniques at that time to prepare yourself before the dive? Was there a lot of like hyperventilation going on, or spe special breathing exercises, or anything like this? 
like the f if I remember well, the first world record uh, I did, um, uh, I think I never did a, a single posture of yoga <laughs> uh, <laughs> before this this first world record. Um, the only thing I was doing is diving a lot. I was diving a lot, a lot, a lot, several times a week. A deep combination of deep dives and um, shallow dives, repetition, like spear fishing kind of uh, training, even if I was not spear fishing. And that was the only way for me to improve and to learn and to, to work on the flexibility and, uh, and, and, and that. Yes, there was some one thing I was doing. Uh, only one thing. Um, I mean, I was trying to stretch my arms uh, on top of my head. Uh, like, you know, I was going on the, on every kind of door I was, I was seeing. I was grabbing the top of the door and I was trying to, uh, open my chest in order to be comfortable in the, uh, monofing position. Mm. Um, ju just, just to be sure that this position would not cost me, uh, uh, energy. So that was one thing I was doing, but I remember I was not really flexible. Uh, at that time, not yet. Um, so um, I was doing two warm-up. This is what I remember well. I was not hyperventilating at all. No, I was packing 20 times, I remember, on this first world record. I was doing a lot of packing, uh, diving with my mask, swimming down to the bottom, no free fall. So <laughs> swimming from the surface to 87 meters uh, with this in this position like uh, uh, like uh, very uh, straight and uh, and, and uh, hydrodynamic uh, three millimeters no weight really another approach than what okay. I'm doing today and uh, uh -huh. uh, it's really funny when I look at the images now uh, yeah yeah you can really see that a lot of things have changed so you talk about having this sort of slow and conservative progression. Was it like that all through your career as a as a freediving athlete? Or were there times when you made big leaps or big jumps or something changed profoundly in the way that you approached your training and your diving that made it a different sport for you that changed things a lot? Yeah, uh, after years and years and uh, with more and more experience, um, I, I mean, improving slowly is still part of, it's still my, my way of doing freediving because I really think this is the only way to stay healthy and to prevent from uh, accidents, squeeze and everything. But... For example, I never now repeat two times uh, a dive uh, before going to the next one, except if I do a bad dive. So yes, of course, if if the, my training is not ha happening well, uh, I I'm, I'm I'm trying again on, on another day uh, just to be sure I can improve. But for example, today I improve between zero and one hundred meters five meters by five meters but it's because i know the 100 area i mean i did my first 100 meters in 2005 uh, 2005 so it's been a while so now i'm what i'm doing is like all winter i'm playing around between 
40 and 60, 65 meters. And then there is a moment I start to improve my performances and I jump five meters by, by five meters. Um, when I, when I'm, uh, deeper than 100, uh, the, the improvement is, 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 uh, smaller. So four by four, three by three. And when I get close to my performance, my personal best, then it's never a bigger, uh, 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 n- never bigger than a three meters improvement. It can be two or three meters more on each dive. Uh, so this is the, the, the difference. And what changed also is that before, when I was attempting a world record, uh, I was trying to make this world record in training first, like two, three weeks before. Sometimes I was trying to go deeper in training, uh, just to be sure that I was, uh, I was able to make it in the competition. Mm-hmm. Today, yeah. I try to get as close as possible to my target, but, uh, I, I, I try the day of the competition or, or the world record to be just a little bit deeper than what I've, uh, uh, what I've done before, just to keep a bit of excitement and uh, to be sure that the day of the competition, I will be like as focused uh, as possible, but I will never do a big jump. Uh, uh, I will try to get as close as possible. And I, I, I accept to try deeper only if the training was like perfect. I, I, I really try and even it's even even more today, since the accident I had in 2015, uh, after the little break I had with competition, I started again two, three years ago. It's been two years I'm training with Bifins, and the performance, the number, is really not my priority. So today, I really try to be as much as possible focused on the feelings and uh, and and... and I have no expectations with the number. I have something in my mind, but I really don't care about uh, it's just uh, an idea, a goal somewhere that lead my uh, lead kind of a way. But I, I am more detached from, from that today. Okay. So, yeah, you brought up there uh, the accident that you had in 2015. And I want to get to that and hear your side of that story. Uh, just leading up to that, up to 2015, you were obviously doing very well as a competitive freediving athlete. Were, were you at that time, were you eventually training in a very uh, systematic way? Did you periodize through the year? Uh, were you incorporating lots of, I know you said that up until your, your first world record, you never did any yoga posture, but did you start incorporating certain like, uh, strength trainings or yoga or running or different kinds of complementary training around, around your free diving as you moved into those upper levels of the competitive, um, environment? Yes. I've changed a lot through the years, uh, my approach. Um, just going back to uh, my first world record, I was telling you that I was not doing yoga, but I was doing a lot of uh, cardio training. 
because my model was Umberto Pellizzari and mm. on all the video uh, uh, showing Umberto, uh, it was telling that he was swimming, running and doing bicycles. So I was doing a lot of that. Um, it was for me the only way to be ready to uh, perform a deep dive with, of course, the training in the water. And uh, I kept this uh, philosophy um, during uh, many, many years, like doing a lot of uh, uh, cardio training, intense training, bicycle. Um, um, in the winter, I was doing a lot of cross-country skiing, for example, also to train the cardio, to train a bit in altitude. Mm. Um, I started to do specific strength training um, in the process, uh, like for my first world record, I was not, almost not really training uh, uh, the core training and uh, and uh, the muscles and at the gym. Not really. I was not not doing that, and I started to do more and more. Um, uh, there was a year in 2006. I mean, two years in a row where most of my cardio training was done with the French team of fin swimming. I was training mm. with a fin swimming team every morning. So it was a combination of working the technique, but also high intensity cardio. Um, so during those years, it was in 2006, 2007, I learned a lot, a lot, a lot with the position, body position, movement, technique, way of training, exercise to improve the movement. Um, uh, then um, I remember between the last two, three years before the accident, between 2011, 12 to 2015, I changed a lot and I started to reduce a little bit all this cardio training to add more breath hold training. So I was doing, uh, um, um, I mean, more uh, um, a bicycle on breath hold, for example. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. At, at, at the, in the middle of the season until the depths, uh, the depths, uh, training period with my, uh, uh, physical, uh, um, uh, trainer, we started to find a way to add breath hold, uh, at the gym with all the movements, squats and exercise, trying to be as close as possible to, um, to the, the specific. Uh, and what was needed with my legs uh, during a deep dive. So, I mean, um, it became, I think, more and more uh, kind of professional. Um, uh, and, 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 uh, and of course, I was not talking about yoga, but yes, yoga became very important also. Uh, flexibility, uh, the deeper I was going, the harder it was to equalize and I had to face many different uh, challenges uh, with um, performing the mouse feel, being more flexible with my chest and the lungs. So breathing exercise, reverse packing exercise, specific lung training and lung stretching exercise. So all of that uh, became part of my training. And what I realized is that over the years, I mean, when I did my first world record and the first, the two or three first world record, we were four guys always breaking the records of each other. Herbert Nietzsche, Carlos Coste, Martin Stepanek, and myself. Until 2012, and Alec, when Alexei Molchanov 
broke his first world record in mm. the deep. But between 2002 and 2012, in constant weight, we were only the four of us. And it was fascinating to see how uh, different was our way of training. We really all had our own way of training. Very different. One was telling, oh, no, no cardio at all, while I was doing a lot of cardio. One was doing a lot of gym, while the other one... And it was so strange that we could all get more or less the same performance, but with a completely different approach. Right. And between 2010 and 2015, what I realized is that all of us, uh, like Alexei also and other, we were getting closer and closer to the same approach. Everyone has his own little uh, specific uh, way of improving some little things, but training became more and more similar. And I think this is the natural way of the sport. Uh, we We are trying different things. And the more the performance are growing, the more uh, we kind of find uh, 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 not a standard, but yes, uh, there is something that is more working than others. Uh, and that was very interesting for me to be part of that uh, research. When you say that you guys were all, I think you, were, you know, you guys were all coming to like a sort of a central point of understanding about. Um, what is necessary for freediving training at, at those depths, if you could put it very, uh, in a very basic way, what are the main points that people, what are the main points of this training? What are the main, un main understandings here, the basic understandings? What will everyone come to understand as they get closer and closer to that uh, upper limit for themselves? I would say that uh, having um, a good physical preparation at the beginning of the season is something important because we are more more athletes. We need like athletic um, um, uh, uh, preparation because the depth we are achieving now requires to be very athletic. But what I think is very important is to switch kind of very quickly and uh, into a free diving and breast hold uh, training mode. Uh, I, it, took, it took me a lot of time to understand that, uh, but I think it was because of my, uh, I need to do sports. I need mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. exercise for my mind. I'm talking just about depth training because in the pool, I'm sure that other have other approach and I'm not a spe specialist in, in pool training. So I'm only talking about depth training but uh, what is clear for me today is that um, it might be obvious but we have we have to spend as most of the season being as close as possible to our specificity which is doing an effort on breath hold and it took me it took me a lot of time to understand and, pro and process that. Okay, let's take a little bit of a break from that chat with Guillaume. Freediving safety is a topic very close to my heart. 
If you have not done a free diving course yet, or if you don't plan to do a free diving course, trust me, there are some safety protocols, some information about physiology and physics that is absolutely crucial to understand if you wish to be a safe free diver. Uh, if you haven't learned this stuff yet, you have to. Unfortunately, there's a, a free course online that can at least give you a head start on these topics. Here's a little bit from Ted Harty to explain the course. We've all heard it before, but I don't push myself. I know my limits. I've never had a problem before. Like many of you, I've spent countless hours on the internet trying to educate people about safe freediving practices as well as implore them to take a freediving course. This is what led me to create freedivingsafety.com. I wanted to create an online resource that any freediver could instantly access to learn how to dive safely from a trusted and reliable source at no cost to them. My name is Ted Hardy. I'm the founder of Immersion Freediving and my new podcast, Freedive Live. My deepest dive is 279 feet or 85 meters, and I'm an instructor trainer for performance freediving. A freediving course 100% is the best way to gain this knowledge. But what about someone where the nearest instructor is 500 miles away, or they can't afford a course, or they can't get time off work? I never liked the idea that this critical safety information is locked behind the paywall of a freediving course. In my online course, you will learn every single thing that I teach my students with regards to freediving safety, including how to save your buddy's life if they have a blackout. Dive safe out there. It's not even that hard, especially when you can learn for free at freedivingsafety.com. All right, let's get back to Guillaume. So up to 2015, getting deeper and deeper and becoming one of the most famous uh, freediving athletes in the world. And then there was a situation at the uh, uh, World Championships. Was it World Championships in Cyprus? Yes. Yeah. Could you it tell us... Uh, just before the World Championships. Right, in, in the pre-comp, right. The pre Could you tell exactly. us uh, exactly what happened there? And from, from, your, from your perspective, because uh, I hear uh, people talking about this event, but I, I guess I'd never really heard it from your mouth. So I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing what happened. So uh, we were in Cyprus, beginning of September, uh, was preparing there for the World Championship. And as usual now, before the World Championship, there is always a little pre-competition uh, in order for the organization to get ready for the main event. And it's a good opportunity for the athletes who are uh, already around to uh, perform and uh, test the setup and everything. So I was there. I was feeling in kind of good shape. And uh, I, I remember I had like kind of three attempts. Uh, that was one day, the 6th of September, seven, one day off, eight, the nine was off, and the tenth was the last day of the, this mini competition. So I don't remember exactly what I did on the first day of this competition, but it was one, uh, around 122 or 123. At that time, my personal best was 125. So on the second day of the competition, I was ready uh, to improve my personal best. And I asked, uh, I, 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 I made a dive at 126 meters. Um, the dive itself was one of the most incredibly perfect dive I've ever done, uh, deeper than 120. 
all, every people who was there could uh, testify that I was like so clear and so clean and so easy. It was crazy. I managed everything on this dive. Every single part of the dive was perfect. Uh, the free fold, dive time, uh, bottom time, uh, management of narcosis, everything was perfect. So uh, I came back up at the surface with a big smile, protocol, three seconds, I'm okay, no breathing. I was like, wow, maybe I'm finally ready uh, to uh, to announce a world record because the world record was 128. So with my own way of improving, three more meters, everything was okay for me to add the, those three meters because I just did the perfect dive. So I was like, okay, one day off, maybe, maybe, maybe I would have needed two days off, but I was like, okay, I feel, I feel okay. So one day off and I can try it 129. Um, uh, it's important to say also that before that, I only did four world records in 2002, in 2004, 2006, in 2008. Then after uh, 2008, my last world record was, was 113 meters. And in 2009, Urban Niche broke, broke completely the world record. He did 114, then 120. Then two months later, Martin Stepanek did 122. So within one month, I was the world record holder. And one month later, <laughs> right. uh, I was uh, I was at 113, and Martin Stepanek was at 122. Right. So then you had and to wait because, quite a long time again before you had another chance at that. So yes, there was two way to 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 think. It was like okay, I try to hurry up and try to catch up, or I try to respect my the time. I will wait until I'm ready. So years after years, I improve my performances. Uh, and then finally, seven years after, I was like ready for it. Another thing important is that the months before uh, this dive, I started to have like weird feelings, uh, kind of anxiety before the dive, which is something that never really happened to me like that. Uh, in August, one month before, Natalia Molchanova uh, disappeared in uh, this uh, incredible accident. And it was really, really hard for me to accept that. To Because Natalia was like the queen. Was she, We had a very special relation. Uh, I'm a very good friend of Alexei. So she was very kind with me as the friend of Alexei. So she was like behaving like the mother. Uh, she always had good advice to me and she was the model. Like when people were asking me, uh, uh, until uh, what time you can do freediving? I was like, you know what? In freediving with a girl who is still the world record holder at 52 years old. And suddenly this girl was not there. So it was like uh, everything, uh, in my all my uh, belief uh, uh, died uh, suddenly. So I was not feeling as comfortable in the water. And even before my 126, which was a perfect dive, the night before, I had like nightmares. Very, I was about not to dive uh, because like really dark thoughts, thinking I'm going to die and everything. This is something that never happened to me. But when I was in the water, it was so perfect that I was like, okay, 
I stop with my, my nightmares and I just go. So it was the 10th of September. Uh, conditions were, were complete, were perfect. Like the water was calm, like a, like, like, uh, like a lake. And, uh, I was a bit better mentally and emotionally than before the 126. No nightmares. I was like, okay, I know that I can do it. So let's go for it. But still there was, there was a weird feeling, anxiety. I was checking everything in the organization because I could see that organization was still trying to solve different problems. On the dive of my, my 26, things were not completely ready. My oxygen for after the after dive was not ready. I had to ask for it. And so I was not 100% confident about safety, but I was like, okay, now they're ready for sure. So um, I went in the water. I remember the three judges were there. They set up the rope because it was a world record attempt. So when you do a world record attempt, you need to have three judges. Uh, when you're in a competition and you are the deepest, you are the first one to dive. Very often it's, it's the case. So mm -hmm. they were like setting the rope, setting everything. And I was like, okay, I still, I stay inside. I just go. So I left the surface. Everything was very fine. When I look at the images still today, I can see that the movement, everything was as expected. There is a moment during the dive between 100 and 120 where I'm starting to think about the turn. I like, okay, I feel everything. I feel the speed of the water in the face. And I was like, okay, I think I, uh, I might be close. So I'm starting to be ready. I'm still in the present. I don't look down, but I'm, I'm, I'm focused and nothing is coming. So I'm starting to play with the equalization, make I feel like, okay, I have no more reserve and still nothing. And there is a moment I'm like, this is something I never do. I look a little bit down, like where I am. And I see that it's still not the end of the rope, but I see the light, the light with the camera five meters uh, below me. So I'm like, okay, uh, I can do it. Like equalization, I'm almost to my limit, but it's still okay at that depth five more meters is not mm. a big difference in terms of pressure right so i'm like okay i'm going and i went there i grabbed the tag i start swimming back up like in my mind i was like okay um half of the job is done uh let's be focused i was a bit tense because looking down is really something that um breaks it's breaking the focus the attention it creates a bit of stress so i remember the narcosis was kind of strong and then no memory uh, because swimming, swimming, swimming. And mm, the camera shows the film, uh, the, the images uh, shot by Dan uh, Verhoeven, who was there taking pictures with a little GoPro on his, uh, his camera, records this, uh, everything. So at 20 meters, I'm still swimming, but the movement is like uh, really not good. Um, like uh, the, the the ends are not uh, hydrodynamic anymore. Um, like having a hard time to move. I'm slowing down, like if I was like at the surface, but I'm still at fifteen twenty. 
slowing down, slowing down. Safety freedivers are getting closer and I start exhaling bubbles. And nine meters exactly from uh, the surface to the surface, I exhale completely and I lost consciousness. So uh, the safety bring me back to the surface. It takes me uh, 20, 30 seconds to come back up. They pull me back on the little platform. They put me oxygen. And then I start coming back like uh, like a normal uh, after blackout comeback. But it's it's slow. It's long. I'm like hearing the voice, looking around, having the oxygen, trying to breathe. Very painful in my lungs. So I realized that I have a big squeeze. I try to <coughs> cough full of blood. And I, well, I'm like, I don't understand. How is it possible that I did a 126 meters so easy and three meters deeper like that? Um, and, and, and it's really a, a mystery. I, I, I start to wake up very hard to move because I'm full of acid. And I remember one thing at that moment. The first thought of lucidity is a conversation I had with Alexei one or two days ago. We were talking about what to do when you have a big squeeze and, and, and a blackout. Uh, uh, what is the good position? And I remember Alexei was talking about a big blackout he had in 2013 when he tried the world record at 128 in Kalamata. He blacked out, he blacked out uh, at 40 meters deep. Hmm. Huge, huge blackout. And when he uh, came back, doctors were trying to force him to, to stay, uh, to lay down. And he had like kind of survival thing that he had to uh, sit in order right. to uh, have the blood going down uh-huh. in the lungs uh-huh. to 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 have more uh, space in the lung to yes. breathe even I had the same survival uh, instinct and I was remembering this conversation this is the first thing I was remembering uh, I was remembering with Alexei uh, about this conversation with Alexei I was like there is no way I'm staying uh, I'm laying down, even if the doctors were like, okay, keep quiet, keep quiet, stay calm. I was like, no, no, no. I was completely acid, very hard to move. I was like, no, I want to sit, I want to sit. And I sit, and when I was seated, everything was back. <laughs> I was there. It was still painful in the lungs. It was still uh, uh, hard to breathe, but I started to recover. And for five few minutes, I was like, what the fuck? What happened? How is it possible? And I was like desperate, not because of the blackout, because this is something that can happen. I already had a few blackout in the past, but because I, I couldn't understand uh, how I could have a so bad accident while I was thinking I was controlling everything. Uh, I was like, it's been 20 years I'm doing freediving. I was pretty sure I was kind of becoming a real master in understanding everything right. and know nothing. I know nothing. So I was desperate. And I was like, okay, I, I wanted to have some analytics, some numbers. So I will try to check my, I will check my gauge to see uh, what was the dive time. Maybe I was longer. Or, and I look at the gauge and I don't even look at the dive time. I see the number at the depths, and I see that I've been 10 meters deeper. At the beginning, first thought was like, 
oh, okay, I have a problem with my gauge. It's an electronic problem. Right. It's not possible. I, I don't even think about the possibility of a mistake. And then I look at the dive time and I see 25 to 30 seconds more. Hmm. And then I look around and I see that there is something like a kind of panic in the organization, safety, pulling the rope. And I was like, no way. And I realized that there was this mistake. For the listeners who, uh, just, to, just to clarify here, you'd announced this dive of 129, but it turns out that you ended up seeing 139 on your computer. Yes, 139. Uh, so 139 meters, 39 meters, 10 meters more, 13 more meters than my personal best. <laughs> so it's a 10% improvement. <laughs> so that's job. a lot. And congratulations. And, uh, and, and, and really the first thought was, ah, like I was kind of not happy, but okay, I have an answer. I have, I, uh, I know mm. why. So uh, it was not even uh, anger or sadness. No, the first feeling was, I don't know how to say in English, um, uh, relief. I was like kind of relief. And then, of course, angry and uh, all those feelings uh, started to like, and, and, and the fear. I was like, okay, I was, I, I, I got very close to uh, something that could have been very fatal or, or very yeah, bad yeah and uh and then uh, tried to understand and uh, and we realized that the mistake was uh because uh there was uh, a piece of tape missing on the rope measurement and because of the way they put the rope because i was the first one so when you're the first one to dive and with this counterweight balance system this is what we all do. Huh? We you put in the water the maximal length of the rope. Mm. So I think it was one sixty or one fifty meters, and then you adjust with the counterweight, uh, like one fifty, one forty nine, one forty eight, one forty seven until one twenty nine. But for a reason I don't know. Uh, maybe because uh, the organization was late, because uh, one was looking, the other one was talking. I don't know. I have no idea. But uh, there was a lack of attention at that moment. The judges didn't realize that between 150 meters, after 150 meters, that normally the next big number would have, uh, should have been, uh, 140 meters. And it was what it was 140, but because of one piece of tape missing, you could read on the rope 130 meters. So they were like, okay, we are almost there. Right. One more meter. And, uh, looking at the rope, you could see, okay, 129 meters. But the real 129 meters was still in the water 10 meters hmm. deeper after that uh yeah the, the 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 thing is that the people who made the mistake they are all friends we are all friends because we are all a, a little community so i know that they were like feeling uh, very guilty and very bad and we had a chat 
and we had hugs and we were like, okay, it's, it can happen. It's bad. Yeah. It's a big mistake, but something, it, it, this is something that can happen. So a lot of people, a lot of friends, a lot of journalists still today are like, but, uh, were you not, um, uh, angry? Like yeah. they're, mm-hmm. they're uh, did, didn't you want to sue them? Uh, it's very, it's, 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 it's a very bad accident. And uh, like, like, yes, I know, but we are like a family and, uh, and, 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 those kind of mistakes can happen, and uh, and uh, now we, we, it's it's a good lesson for the future. Yes, well, that's the thing. When these uh, terrible accidents happen in in the free diving world, that's uh, it can be unfortunate, but it's also the springboard for a lesson learned, and hopefully the prevention of that to happen again in the future. So th- this, after this horrific experience, uh, is it, kind of a, a nightmare um, experience for any deep free diver. Uh, I think even any free diver, to be honest. Um, you you then retired from competition. Did you retire because of this accident, or were there other reasons on top of that? I was think I was thinking of slowing down. Uh, between the beginning of my career to 2013, every year I was training for world record attempts or a world championship. In 2014, for the first time, I was like, okay, I take uh, one year of break. And I was like, my new, um, the new way is one year competition, one year off. When I, what I mean by one year off is that I'm still training. But I don't compete. So I was already in the process of slowing down. Mm. But because of the accident, I was like, okay, it's too much. And on top of that, the last months before the accident, I had all these bad right, thoughts, yeah. mm-hmm. this fear that I, I didn't have before. And then the thing I was like, uh, 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 that, uh, uh, yeah, what I was expecting to happen just happened. So I was like, okay, I have to, it's the moment to stop. I became a dad also in 2012, so three years before. So when you become a dad, things are changing also. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, it was not like I'm a dad, I stop, not at all. But things slowly start to change. And, uh, and with the accident, it was like the, yes, the moment to say, okay, it's time to stop. At the beginning, I was like, I stopped everything, competing and um, and uh, and and uh, trying to chase world records and, and everything. And and then um, I realized that there was something missing, and uh, and I re- I wanted to come back uh, three years after in 2018, and uh, this is what I did. Uh, but really, and still today, something has changed. I'm still happy to train. I'm still happy to get back to, 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 to the, the, to the deep. But, uh, the motivation, our, our motivation is completely different. Um, I want to master my, my dives. I want to slowly go a little bit deeper than before. But just for me, I'm not thinking about records. Today I'm training with bifins. Last year I did 108 and my target for this year is to dive between one, 110, 112, 
maximum 115, even if the world record is 118. And I, uh, with with my the, the the mindset I had before, it would have been okay. I tried I tried to be as close as possible to the world record this year. Honestly, I don't care. Is really a personal quest, and I think this is changing a lot of things, even in my approach in the everyday, the way I'm training, I'm really more relaxed. If I don't go for in one training, it's okay. Uh, sometimes I have four days off, which is that something that never happened in, the, in, in the past for 20 years. I was like training every day, one day off in the week, always doing something, feeling guilty when I was missing one training. Now it's like I'm training. If for four or five days, I'm not training. It's okay. It's okay. And, and this is what I'm discovering also is that rest, resting is so important uh -huh. because I'm so surprised today to experience incredible feelings in the water. Uh, I'm still improving my performances and I feel that uh, uh, having some rest, uh, and this is maybe something I'm starting to understand now, it's some, is, is probably something that is very hard for freedivers to understand. Yes. A lot of freedivers are overtraining, I think, even mm -hmm. in my freediving mm -hmm. club. Always trying to tell people, it's okay, rest, rest more, uh, skip this training, you will feel better in the next dive. And it's so hard to do it because if you compare to other sports, uh, it feels like we're training less than other sports. And on top of that, if you're asking to the, the athletes to rest more, uh, psychologically, it's hard, so hard. And I'm only able to understand it now uh, that I don't care with the performance. So it's very funny. So right. that's what I like. That's yeah. really what I like in the approach is that every time, every moment in, the, in, in, in your life, you can learn. And sometimes you have to wait certain moments, mm -hmm. some certain, uh, 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 you have to be ready to learn something you maybe already know, but you're not ready to accept it. So right. this is fascinating. Yes, yes. yes. Um, so, I, you know, I've talked, I've talked to hundreds or well, not hundreds, but way more than a hundred um, of the world's top free divers and free diving coaches and, you know, everyone involved in the sport and uh there seems to be this idea that guillaume neri is like uh it's just not on the scene but what you're saying is that you have come back to training as a, a deep free diving athlete but maybe you're just doing it more on your own terms and we can expect to see you again in the future in competition diving deep and maybe deeper than you've dived before i have no idea <laughs> <laughs> Good. <laughs> i have no idea what what is sure is that i i i am there was something um uh, and that's also one of the reasons why i i decided to uh, switch to a uh, bifin uh it's just because first because i wanted to try something new uh just to find a kind of new motivation also because it's really the way, the, maybe the most natural way to go in the water. Uh, if I'm not going for a performance, I'm always having bifins. I'm not wearing mm -hmm. monofin. So mm -hmm. I, there is something interesting to, for me to, to go back to kind of roots. And it's going back to the first 
um, uh, the first love I had when I looked at Umberto Pellizzari uh, going down with his bifins. But there is also this motivation of uh, exploring performances a little bit shallower than monofing dives. Because there is really something when you're close to 130 meters, uh, you are getting to uh, a kind of zone where you... I had this feeling that um, I cannot control 100% of the performance. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, yeah. I can't control 100% of my mind because of narcosis, because of... Uh, uh, there is maybe this unknown that was very excited uh, very exciting before and that may that i'm maybe not ready anymore to accept okay because because the age because i have a daughter yeah i don't know today what i've learned also with this accident and with the decision i had i took after the accident is i try not to talk in the for the future <laughs> Mm -hmm. I, I, I cannot yeah. say, uh, no, no, for sure. I would never put back the monofin. I would never go back to 125. I, d I don't know today. What I feel is that this is really not something that uh, uh, is alive in me. Uh, mm -hmm. Today, I really want to have fun with my bifins. Mm -hmm. And I'm so happy if I can dive around 110, 150. Thank you for sharing the, the story of the accident and what happened after. And uh, and also the way that you're approaching uh, this, you know, sport. And although I do talk about freediving a lot on this podcast as a sport, you know, for I would say for most of it, it's not just a sport, of course, it's a way of life and it's it's something deeper and it's something that is it's kind of like a vehicle to take us into deeper places inside ourselves to learn things about ourselves. And it sounds to me like you are still using free diving for that purpose. And that is, uh, that is nice to hear. Before we move on to sort of switch things over to the next kind of uh, area of topics, I, I do want to honor my, my Patreon supporters a little bit. I got quite a few questions from those guys uh, for you. Uh, People were quite excited that you were coming on. Um, I got a question from uh, Maria, from Maria Nikolova. Uh, she just wants to say, actually, that you're an inspiration as a top-level athlete, as an artist, and uh, that you keep reminding us that free diving is not only about the long apnea and the three-digit numbers and the tags, but also about making yourself part of the big blue world, exploring it, admiring it, and protecting it, and that you're a true underwater ambassador. Um, so thank you, uh, Maria and Maria had a question about pool. I think you can answer the answer the question about if you're going back to competition or not, but she saw that you were doing some pool training, uh, or some pool competition and, and one wondered like what your, your goal is there. And she said that you saw that you did a competition dive, but you only, uh, did 104, <laughs> only did 140 meters. And, um, and, and why why you you chose to do such a sh uh, short dive uh pool competition as uh, and as i always has as uh, i always had a very hard time to perform in the pool <laughs> still 
it's still a big mystery. One thing I want to achieve in my career is to reach 200 meters in the pool. Uh, <laughs> uh, so it's, it's it might weird. Uh, it might be weird when you see uh, Matt Malina yesterday who did 250 breaststroking. Uh, I just want to go to 200 with fins or monofin. <laughs> I don't care. One day because I have a big um, uh, psychological limitation with with the pool performances. I I'm very good in training, like uh, in in uh, in uh, all the CO2 uh, table, the, all the exercise. I'm better than the other one with with me in training. Uh, I'm training with Arthur Arthur Guerin Boeri, mm -hmm, who is the mm -hmm. first guy who did 300 meters, and when we're training together. All the exercise, if I have to swim length repetition between zero and 100, I'm always better than him. I, I, I recover faster. I can swim uh, uh, like everything easier for me. As soon as I have to do a performance, a longer distance, nobody's nobody's here anymore <laughs> like uh, Arthur is uh, crazy incredible and mastering so it's still a big mystery and I think that there is something between uh, something with the metabolism more adapted to the depth mm. than for the to the pool it's about the way of training uh, this is something I want to explore in the future but I have time mm. to explore it yeah. so when I did this competition this competition was just for fun it's, it's a, a competition little a regional competition organized by Claude Chapuis, my mentor. So I was like, ah, I want to do it. And I did it with the small fins, the 140. That's why it was only 140 meters because it was with the little small, uh, blue, uh, by fins. It was just, just a game for fun. Yeah. I, I, I also feel the same way. You know, I, my, my performance in the pool compared to my performance in the depth is i feel like i'm on completely different planets um i feel like I, when i do pool training that i've been dragged to the the i don't know like the, the the meeting or something like that and i have to like sit through sit through the meeting but i don't know if it's so much a metabolism thing for me as a, a psychological thing but I, I it's also something that i want to overcome and explore at some point and, and see like why is it that i that i, I can't be comfortable in this environment but that's yeah. Uh, as for the future, sometimes, uh, sometimes it's it's funny. Uh, sometimes it happened that I have dreams. A lot of people are asking me, "How oh, do you dream about uh, being uh, going deep, 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 deep uh, with animals, and you don't need to breathe?" And not very often, but sometimes there is one dream I have: is going in the pool and swim in the water, a dynamic with no need to breathe, and when I dream about that, I wake up and I was, I'm like, okay, I, this is something I want to experience once in my life. It's like one of my dream. It's, there is no fantasy, no, there is nothing funny, but in terms of, uh, exploration, that would be like something incredible. When I look at the 300 meters swim of Matt or, or Arthur, I'm like, wow, this is for me something unbelievable last question related to, to training here uh, i want to ask this question from david omi who's a, a long-term supporter of the show um he's talking about you know and we're going to come on to this topic it's a nice segue actually the the videos that you've uh, produced the films that you've produced with your wife um 
and he's he loves these videos he loves the, these films and he has questions about uh if you can offer practical or psychological advice on how you can achieve this level of relaxation when you're doing diving it dealing with high levels of co2 high levels of contraction you know uh especially in the kind of things that you do for the videos you know there must be some quite high demand there to have a high degree of relaxation and comfort in the water uh so first of all let me uh, just uh, precise one thing all the video i've done with julie gautier she was my wife but we're not together anymore so it's it's uh, it's just 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 to to tell that uh, but it's my okay it's, okay it's no problem it's been almost three years and we are still in very good relation and uh, we are still working sometimes together but it's just to clarify uh we we were together for all the videos but uh, it's not the case today so it's okay, okay. no problem at all okay. <laughs> no thank worries you. thank you for clearing up <laughs> no problem um uh yes that's really challenging and what is the most challenging is that the discomfort you can have on some sequence uh has to be invisible invisible in the images and that requires to have a very good training level and that's the reason why i never stopped training um uh, be because uh, uh on some on some video uh, let's talk about uh, the last one, the one breath around the world. Um, it looks like I'm uh, moving with uh, uh, fluid movements in different places, but you have to know that most of the scenes I'm doing them, I'm doing it uh, empty lungs in order to be to the floor. Some of the since the scenes, especially when you are with animals, you have to move quick, you have to move fast, and you cannot recover as you would like to recover because sometimes you have one situation and it's now or never. So it's very, very, very hard. And uh, it's, it's, um, it's all about all the training I'm doing the thousands of hours in the pool, re repeat uh, CO2 tables and the lamp and everything that helped me to overcome the discomfort. And yes, on one of the, like for example, in one breath around the world, the last, the last dive, the last moment where I encountered the humpback whales after the, the sperm whales, that was one of the most horrible uh, <laughs> breaths old in my life. Because I could see that the animals were here. They were about to move, change, pos change position. It was the last dive of the day and maybe the last dive of the trip. And we still didn't have the final images I had in my mind. I really wanted to have like an encounter face to face and me going away, swimming as far as possible to the limit of visibility. And I was tired at the surface. I was like, <gasps> Okay, now, uh, empty lungs, and I think I had contraction on the way down already. And I was like, okay, the camera is at the right, the whales, I try to keep calm. Sometimes 
even I try to close my eyes, even if, if I have the whales in front of me, just to be sure I'm focused and, and calm. And I try to behave like very gentle. And I just have contractions. I have contractions. And because I've been training so many times with contraction, I can manage them. I can manage it. And then I escape and I swim and I'm like, okay, I want to breathe now, now, one more swim, one more movement. And I'm always thinking about the results, the camera. Where is the camera? No, the, 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 the sequence will not be perfect if I don't swim more, more, more. And because I have my safety, because there is no way to do film like that without big safety. Mm. I accept to suffer a little bit more and also because I know that I'm hypercapnic a lot. So it protects me. Uh, right. It protects me uh, because I'm hypercapnic. So I know that the, this need to breathe, uh, um, uh, it's just an information. But when I came back from this dive, I had a little samba at the surface. <laughs> this is the behind the scenes <laughs> uh, behind the scenes uh secret information from guillaume well y there you go yeah and i think that uh we had a couple more questions from one from uh, dean lafan and uh and rodrigo and they were also basically asking a similar thing about the pr process of how those videos are are made and um and you you mentioned uh julie i mean julie is uh uh responsible for the i mean I, I don't know actually are are you as much of an artistic force in making these videos as julie is or are you just the model uh how motivated are you to also create these um pieces of art and, and what's the reason um i mean we are both uh, very inspired uh but uh, to be to be honest and this is not what the people think, but it's okay. I was the, the motor at the beginning. Uh, free fall was my idea. Uh, I had this kind of the scripts, different scenes and everything. And we were with Julie and we had this camera and I gave the camera to Julie and I was like, okay, I have an idea. Let's shoot like that. I want to tell this little story. It was really quick and easy. Yeah. It was just, I want to walk to stop in front of the blue hole and I want, I want to jump and you just film that. This is something that can be funny. And that was it. I was not like, okay, it will be the buzz worldwide. No, no idea at all. It was just to film something different. So I, I was the, let's say the, 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 I mean, the artistic, uh, the artistic, uh, Will came from me on this movie. But Julie, when she had the camera, wow, she, she is like, uh, incredible underwater. She has crazy idea on the, on the way to move, the way to behave with the camera. So she has also an incredible eye. She's a dancer. So she has, uh, a lot of uh, ideas. So I think this is a combination for Narcos, uh, the second movie. This is. Julie's idea and I was just a model. I helped her a lot with some ideas, but she like wrote the script and uh, that this is really her project. For Ocean Gravity, this is my idea and my, my, my will, my will to show the proximity and the link between space and underwater. When I saw, when I 
uh, dove in this uh, place in French Polynesia, I had this idea immediately to uh, to create the illusion of space and the water, and so same than threefold, I gave her the camera uh, for uh, Beyonce video uh, running. It's completely Julie's idea. I was just a model. I did nothing else than being a model in the water. So we all have our own uh, sensibility, our own way, our own imagination. For One Breath Around the World, this is really my idea. Uh, since like it was several years, I had this idea in mind to combine different underwater landscape, uh, 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 unusual landscape, that could show um, all uh, all the underwater possible uh, scenery. So I was like, okay, I want to travel in one breath in the ocean, in the Mediterranean Sea, close to the shore, in the big blue. I want to meet human. I want to meet animals. I want to be under the ice, fresh water, salt water, cave, like a kind of a big mix of what it is the underwater world so that was really um really my my baby and the the, the movie i'm the most proud of because i really i i, I was uh, really fully i was really fully de dedicated in uh thinking about this project and and trying to tell this story um uh so it's really we are both both uh in the artistic way to share our passion for the underwater uh, and and today julie is doing a lot of uh, projects um, uh, uh, she did uh, her dance movie ama so she, this is really her her way to express in the water in front of the camera because before that she was more behind the camera mm. and her last project that just came out a few days ago narcissus is also a dance in the water and this is this is uh, uh, the way she wants to express uh, her love with water through dancing. I'm I'm I'm, I'm having other um, yeah my approach is different. I want to use a natural landscape. I want to use um, there is no choreography. I want to more be in the imaginary of a kind of the superhero in the way of walking, in the way of behaving in the water. Uh, Julie is more like the dan dancing and I'm more like a Marvel, uh, Marvel right. uh, uh, model. And uh, this is more my world, let's say. Uh, and do you, do you have uh, more ideas? Do you want to make more films or, or is that something that you've, if uh, you don't have anything burning uh, in the background? No, anymore. not yet. I have uh, some uh, images because it's always starting like that. I have images, I see pictures, and I think about a way to be, to uh, to put a human in a, in a landscape. So I have some things, but I have no, I have no, no real um, thing and project in mind. Today, to be honest, uh, uh, one breath around the world. I put so much in one breath around the world in, t in terms of uh, 
uh, in terms of places, in terms of story, that I want to wait until I have another idea uh, to make it. But I think I've um, there are so much films, images, short films today that I feel a little bit tired about images, and that's the reason why I started. I, I started to write. Uh, this is another thing I love to do, and it's also another way, another artistic way to share the passion, is using words. Mm. And uh, I just uh, I just wrote a book, uh, just released a book in French only. I hope it's going to be translated in other uh, languages. And today, the other ideas I have are more uh, around uh, writing. Mm. Or, so is this one uh, yeah. pro Profondeur? <clears throat> no, Profondeur is the first one. Right. Uh, the first one I wrote uh, uh, eight years ago. Uh, actu actually, this one, Profondeur, was a book I wrote with a journalist. I mean, it's more the journalist that wrote uh -huh. for me than uh -huh. me. The last one, this one, not, uh, okay, uh, it's Nature Aquatique. Aquatic nature. nature. Aquatic, uh -huh. uh, this one I wrote it from the first word to the last word, uh, and it's like it was really um, uh, like I put a lot, a lot of energy, a lot of passion, a lot of time because it's 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 uh, it's a very long process to write books, to write uh, pages. It shows you how far behind I am if I think that the profondeur is your latest book. But it was eight years old already because we don't have these books in English yet, Guillaume. This is a problem. No, it's I I uh, self-published the book in English, so you can find it, and maybe oh, really? it's a good inform. Yes, the the book name in English is. Uh, you can order it uh, for all the people who are listening. It you can order it uh, on the um, uh, Blue Nary uh, Academy shop. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I have 1,500 uh, books mm -hmm. ready to be uh, re ready to be to be sent. Uh, so that's the old one, uh, but it's still telling a lot about my approach with deep diving, my story, story of uh, the the way of uh, training and the, the way of. Uh, uh, my the switch I did between performance and doing films, so yes, it's all right. Uh, okay, I I'm gonna go and pick big, up a copy, uh, and uh, I, I need something to yeah. read when I go to Dahab in a few weeks. So uh, then you'll okay. have 1,499 copies, and uh, <laughs> a little bit closer to selling those out. Um, all right, let's switch uh, switch gears a little bit here. I mean, moving on from the um, the discussion about the videos, you know, I was just watch, I was just looking through YouTube and catching up with some of the latest stuff that you've been doing. And I was, uh, I saw that you did this one ocean summit and, um, I couldn't understand a word of it cause it was in French, but I got the basic idea. Um, I, and then I saw this very, very nice video that you did with uh, coral gardeners, um, hold your breath. Uh, so, it seems that the subject of ocean conservation and environmental issues are something that is uh, very important to you. So can you tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing in, in that area? 
Yeah, today I feel um, a kind of a responsibility to uh, to be one of the voice uh, for the uh, the ocean. Uh, uh, today, the situation in terms of uh, environmental crisis is very, very, very bad, and uh, we are facing uh, uh, like uh, a real crisis. So I try to use my voice. Uh, to raise this awareness and to bring as much uh, people um, as as much people as possible uh, to be more aware about what's happening. Um, I really think that uh, we need a massive change uh, in the, the the way us as a species, mankind, we have to change our way to interact with nature. And of course, my uh, my role as an, a free diver is to uh, open the eyes of as much people as possible on what, what's happening in the water. So I try to collaborate with uh, many uh, uh, foundations, associations uh, to help them to uh, to spread uh, the spread the word about their work. Uh, today, like the last two days, I've been sharing. Um, uh, uh, political things about what's happening in the uh, European Parliament, who is voting um, uh, some uh, different laws uh, in terms of uh, the fishing. Um, this is a r real topic that uh, I think matters. There are a lot of topics that matters, plastic, uh, global warming, but overfishing, I think, is one of crucial thing that has uh, has to change uh, because uh, this is something we can do it right now and the result of protect having more protected uh, area uh, the impact is huge uh, global warming is a real big issue but the change is massive to do is it's not just a change in the ocean is a change in our complete lifestyle all around mm. the world so it's going to be more longer and more difficult but uh, pushing putting a huge pressure uh, on the government to uh, uh, and, and, and sharing with as much people as possible so we have like a big pressure from all the, 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 the people to tell the politics okay you have to change the laws not only countries by country but in terms of continent about the way we are uh, like killing life in the water, I, I try to bring my voice to put a pressure uh, on on these very important topics. So this is an example of how I try to uh, to to use my name uh, to, to to do that. So films are also a way to. Uh, show what's happening in the water to show the beauty and the fragility. Writing books is also a way because in my books I'm telling a lot about the relation with the water. Um, teaching as much people as possible to discover the underwater world is also a way. So today we need all, we need, uh, all the approaches. Uh, scientists, scientific, uh, are studying they're bringing numbers, they're bringing facts, and our work is to help them 
to better understand what's really happening. And if people are want to help, if they want to learn more if about ocean conservation and, and what can be done and what is being done, where would you direct people to, to learn more? Where would you direct people to uh, put their also their their financial support, for example, if because a lot of people right now, man, they're just like they know the problem is so huge that it seems like it's too big to even start to do anything about. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so you know, someone might want to give ten bucks or twenty bucks a month to a foundation or organization that does something, but wouldn't even know where to start because it all seems pointless. So, you know, what are your recommendations for where people can uh, best put their their money and their uh, attention? It's it's hard to give advices because I know I know in France, for example, some organization and what they're doing. Uh, there are some bigger organization uh, worldwide um, that are acting a lot. Um, I think we have to see the problem on different scales. Acting locally is very important uh, because it's the way to be in contact with the problem and to solve locally a problem. So, just looking around. Uh, searching on internet, different organizations that are like doing acting uh, on different places um, uh, and ha being in contact with them and asking them what they need. Uh, sometimes people need money, sometimes they need uh, uh, um, uh, human energy and start to be, start to, to feel, not just to read information. And then I think we need to, um, uh, there are a lot of uh, very interesting websites. Uh, so I know only the French one, uh, but uh, That's there okay. are some we can, uh, we can put them in the show notes. So if you have any names, it's okay. Yeah, yeah there is one, one website uh, called Reporter, for example. Reporter, uh, it's a website that gives uh, all the information about what's happening today with climate, biodiversity, uh, mixed with politics. And, uh, and, and it's a good, it's, a, it's an independent, independent uh, uh, media. So I think this is very important to have like uh, uh, independent informations um, so that you have a better view of what's happening. There is an, also a big channel very, very powerful in France, uh, only in, in the web called Blast, Blast.com, that gives you a very interesting point of view of, of the situation in terms of uh, uh, environmental issues. Uh, this is only in France, but each country, uh, there are some um, uh, independent uh, medias uh, that are uh, providing a lot of very good information. And based on what you can find them, uh, when, what you can find uh, there, you can uh, choose where to put the money, how, how, how to help. Um, but I think after reading a lot of different actions and everything, that nothing will be possible if there is no, if, if, if there is not a massive pressure by the people to the big interest, uh, the big companies, politics, lobbies, 
uh, that are uh, managing the laws. Uh, um, uh, and today I r really realized that we have the power, the people, to put a huge pressure uh, and use the social media, for example, to raise this knowledge of what's happening really behind some votes, the pressure of some lobby that want pr to protect uh, their area, and why things are so slow to change because of the big power of those people. And sometimes uh, you realize that I think it should be a real priority. So, the, so that as much people as possible should know what's really happening. Otherwise, if you don't change that, you can do as many little actions as possible. Mm. It's good for you to be in contact with the problem, but that will not really change the situation if you don't look at the real problem. So we need the two aspects. And this is what I'm starting right. to understand. And that's why yeah. I'm trying to use my social uh, network to put the pressure uh, where we should put the pressure and raise awareness about, uh, about, about this decision that are made that we uh, are, as people, don't really know. And there are some foundations, some people that are working hard to make things change, but they're facing so big... Uh, power and, uh, and and so big uh, money uh, interests that it's yeah. hard to, to, to change. So I think I'm going, going to use uh, more and more my voice to, to help those uh, NGOs to uh, to change. And one NGO I'm supporting a lot. There are several, but Sea Shepherd, for example, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. is doing an incredible work. They're going straight in the water and they're like really, uh, they're making real change. And uh, another NGO called Bloom uh, is very powerful to raise awareness in terms of uh, illegal fishing, in terms of, um, and I'm trying to add them uh, right now in the European Parliament to uh, to to be sure uh, that yeah to to help them to 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 help them to put the pressure on the politics. To vote the good decision. Yeah, sometimes it's hard just um, getting getting their voices heard when there are so many different problems and issues that have to be raised for governments to address and for you know, and like you say that it's not just individuals. Individuals, of course, have to work from the bottom up, uh, but the organizations have to work from the top down, and there has to be some kind of meeting in the in the middle because uh, without Without that, then it doesn't matter what little changes people make in their lives. Um, it's just a it's, it's a pretty small gesture when when governments and organizations are <clears throat> uh, really the ones that need to make the biggest changes. All right, um, let's uh, move on from this difficult uh, and not so. Uh, happy topic of how we're completely screwing up the world um that's you know we don't often talk about this um ocean conservation issue on the free dev cafe that much anymore because in the beginning episodes we did that but uh the the same same issue comes up again and again the same answer comes up again and again and it was uh, it seemed like there wasn't much point in continuing but 
it's always important to check in with uh, people that are trying to do something and to raise awareness as, as little as we can um, every so often to remind people that they can do something. Okay, um, <clears throat> let's uh, start to wind down here now, Guillaume. Um, before we, we're going to go through these uh, desert island questions uh, for for the patrons uh, shortly. Describe for us your perfect morning routine. This section of the show, the Desert Island Questions, is exclusively for Patreon supporters. This is a fun little section we tack on to the interviews where I ask a selection of fun questions to the guests, such as uh, if you could only take three books to a desert island, which books would you take? Uh, what is your perfect morning routine? And if you could travel back in time anytime, any place, where would you go? Uh, if you would like to get access to this and lots of other exclusive content at Patreon, go to patreon.com slash freedavcafe. All right, let's go. All right, okay, thank you so much for answering those questions, uh, Guillaume. Um, let's just uh, wind down here with the last few. I mean, uh, last question on the topic of free diving. If you had only three minutes or if you had only a couple of minutes, no need to make it three, but... If you just had a couple of minutes to impart the most crucial, essential advice to someone wishing to progress in freediving, what would you say? What, what's, what do they need to know? Um, it's all about time and relaxation. I think that would be the main advice. That is a kind of the opposite of what beginners have in mind when they start freediving. They're like, okay... I want to improve as quick as possible and I want to reach the target and reach the record. And when you are obsessed with a goal, a number, you're not relaxed. And when you want to get results, you don't take time. I think those two things are so important. And uh, this is the only way to uh, really taste the magic of freediving. Time and relaxation, as simple as that. Yeah, and yet so difficult for people to realize. Oh, yeah. Uh, do you have any uh, uh, people that you would like to just uh, say thanks to? Uh, the Maybe influential people in your life who have helped you on your journey so far? I would say, uh, of course, I talked at the beginning uh, uh, about Claude Chapuis and Loïc Leferme, uh, but more in general, I would really like to uh, think about all the people I'm training with uh, here in Nice at the SIPA. Uh, SIPA is the Center International uh, Plongée en Apnée, free, di free diving. This is where I did all my first, my, all my records. This is where I'm still training. I was in the morning, this morning in the mm. water, and we really created uh, a, a group with a, a spirit. And this spirit is still there it's been 20 years people are changing some are still there and um, all the people who have been part of this adventure it's because of them that i could make all of that it's because of their energy it's because of their help it's because of their expertise it's because they're uh, uh, challenged me um, to forget about just my own performance because the spirit of our group is we help each other uh, it's because sometimes they help me to forget about my little problems and I try to give them energy to help them. So this energy, this spirit, I think this is 
priceless. That's nice to know that some things in some places don't change or don't change too much and that the roots are deep down and keep everything stable and there's a place to go back to. I like that idea. Okay, finally, can you say in a few words, Guillaume, why do you freedive? I freedive because uh, being in the water is what helps me the most to live a better life, uh, a better everyday life. It's really brings me peace. It brings me kind of everything. It brings me the love of challenge when I need to challenge. It brings me uh, peace when I'm in a hurry or stress in my in my life. It really helped me to find a good balance to living to live better to uh to 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 to, to be um wiser uh freediving taught me all the biggest lesson i've learned in my life how to manage uh, challenges how to behave with my environment how to behave with people uh, freediving taught me that's more than competition uh, community and cooperation is more important so really i learned so much with freediving that today it's a way of life it's just a philosophy guillaume thank you so much for finally coming to the freedive cafe uh, it's been an absolute pleasure having you here i can't wait to to get this interview put together and share it with the uh the freediving community out there. Yes, merci beaucoup. It was a real, real pleasure. Thanks a lot. All right, I will be in touch with you soon. And until then, enjoy the rest of your day and enjoy your aperato or aperatif or what it is. Uh, <laughs> apero, apero. Apero, apero. <laughs> enjoy your apero, Guillaume. Okay, talk to you Thank later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was Guillaume Neri. Thank you so much to him for making the time to talk with me from Nice. Yes, it has been years and years that I tried to get Guillaume on the show. The last time I was sitting down ready to hit the record button was in uh, Bali uh, more than two and a half, well, two and a half years ago now, uh, when this pandemic was just about to basically forced me out of Bali and uh, we couldn't do the interview because he had his car broken into. So the universe conspired to send us on our separate ways for a while, but we eventually met. We did our thing for the Freedive Cafe and I'm so happy that we finally managed to do that. Coming up next on the Freedive Cafe, uh, Rami Bladlev, uh, Swedish athlete, huge in static. He's been sharing some fun pictures with me how he's been training for competition, uh, basically lying in his bathroom next to a radiator with his head stuck in a Tupperware box. Um, hey, you got to do what you got to do. Uh, this is a guy I'm really looking forward to to interviewing, former uh, mixed martial arts uh, fighter. We also have uh, the second deep dive episode of the Freediving Journal coming up before the end of the month, hopefully. 
that is going to be an episode on pre-dive breathing or breathe-ups. I got answers to the question, what do you do in the two minutes before your deep dives? I got those answers from William Tribridge, Alessia Zacchini, uh, Tom Pellet, Thibaut Gignes, uh, too many to remember right now, but uh, Wally Budiaf, just huge names uh, telling us what they do in those two minutes before they dive. All right, so lots more to come. Uh, when I get to Dahab, I got two new microphones so I can do some good face-to-face -face interviews with video when I'm in Dahab. That's going to be exciting. Uh, let's see what happens until we are meeting again, until you hear me again. Dive safe.